Welcome to the Church 214 podcast. We're glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you enjoy today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at church214.org. Grab the hand of someone next to you that you love or just kind of like. And I want you to pray this over them as I pray. So everyone is being prayed for by someone else. Holy Spirit, we come here in your presence. We thank you for your presence, God. May our ears and our hearts be open, be like soft clay, that you can take the words that come out of my mouth, God, and mold them into whatever it is that each individual heart needs to hear, God. May each person in this room today know the love of their Heavenly Father in a way they have never experienced it before. We invite you not to just be in this place, but to overflow in this place, God. We step out of the way so that your presence can do what only your presence can do. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Before I get started, the last couple of weeks we've been sharing testimonies about what God has done in our week, and I was told that I don't get to tell anymore, which I received that. <laughs> I just have too many. I can't not tell them. So um, someone down there has a microphone, and it's going to be hot, and I want some. I cannot see you all. So whoever's down there, raise your hand if you have a God story, and find someone, Holly, that has their hand raised. You only have about a minute to tell your God story. Come on, I know God has done something in your life this week. Who wants to share it? Blake. It was just a few minutes ago, actually. Um, But we were just worshiping, and Heather asked me to pray over her back because her lower back just started hurting so bad to the point that she was distracted. And she's getting ready to come up here and preach, so we stop in the middle of worship. I put my hand on her back, and we start praying, and the pain is gone. Praise God. For the rest of you, it's time for some boldness. It's time to start proclaiming what God is doing in your lives. And if he's not doing anything in your lives, then please come see me after church because we want to change that. We want to get your eyes focused on what God is doing in your lives, even though you may not be seeing it. Well, I'm pretty sure that we chose Colossians as a teaching team as our next series because subconsciously we weren't quite ready to give up Straight Street yet. Anybody else? (laughs) I love reading the words of Paul so much. I think maybe it's because I'm an eight on the Enneagram. Um, And if you don't know anything about the Enneagram, go check it out. It's really awesome. I didn't know much about it until recently. But here's the thing. It's helped me understand myself a lot. It's also helped me love and lead the people around me much um, in a much clearer way. So I think that Paul, maybe Paul was an eight. Um, In fact, I'm pretty sure Paul was an eight. Uh, Eights like to shoot straight, and they don't hold back. So maybe that's why I love Paul, especially. (laughs) Open up your Bibles today to Colossians 4. We're at the very end of this series, uh, the last chapter of Colossians. I think we limited it to four and maybe could have gone eight or 12 weeks because I feel like we're just barely getting into the depth of this book. 
But I loved it when Chris reminded us last week that Paul did not write this to the church in Colossae as a book of the Bible. It was written as a personal letter. Think about getting a handwritten letter. It's a big deal, right? When someone takes the time to write you in their own handwriting a letter and give it to you. I can think back on my life and I can point out exact letters that people wrote, they wrote me and how they made me feel. My brother wrote me a letter the day I crashed our family car with two of my little siblings in it when I was 16. In that letter, he reminded me, Heather, don't be fearful. Get back in the car and trust God because he is with you. My dad wrote me a letter right before I got married. In that letter, he told me how much he had loved raising me and how proud of me he was. My husband wrote me dozens of love letters before we got married. And I can't tell you what was in those. <laughs> True. <laughs> Big family problems. My 86-year-old grandma wrote me a letter just this past Christmas telling me how special I was to her and how I would always hold a special spot in her heart that was reserved just for me. So think about the letters you've gotten. And now think about this book of the Bible as a personal letter to this church in, in Colossae. They must have felt so very cared for and thought of when they received it. Paul, this great apostle that they had all heard of, had written them a letter. See, Paul hadn't actually ever been to this town. This church was established on his third missionary journey, but not by him. It was established by a man named Ephesus. And Colossae, it's in modern-day Turkey now, so if you think of a map, you can think of about where that might be. It was one of the most important trade routes from Ephesus to the Euphrates River in early ancient times. It was an important city. It was bustling. However, by the time Paul wrote this letter, the trade traffic had been rerouted to different cities, which left Colossae as a bit of an afterthought. A dwindling, small, insignificant market town. Colossae was once an important city and now had been dwindled down to an afterthought, which people were leaving to go find someplace more exciting. Does this sound familiar? Except for the fact that a church had been established there and Jesus was there with them. You see, no town is insignificant if Jesus is there. No city, even if people say, eh, you don't want to live there, is out of reach for the Spirit of God to come down upon and cause generations of people to be inspired by what takes place in that city. Am I preaching to anybody today? Our city is significant because Jesus is here. And we, the followers of Jesus, are also here. So never underestimate the place where God has planted you. 
I just talked to a sweet friend of mine just a few minutes ago who was called to the city from out of state. She was called to Peoria, Illinois to minister to the people in the city. So Paul feels compelled to write this letter to the Church of Believers in Colossae. And most of these people are not Jews. They're Gentiles, which is mostly what Paul ministered to, who he reached. It was a mix of Greeks, Romans, and there were a few Jews in there. But Paul was now in prison as he writes this letter. And Ephesus, who had started this church in Colossae, had come to visit him. And while he was visiting him, he had told Paul, hey, there's some false teaching going on. There's some people that have come in that are saying some things that are not true. They're saying some things that are different from the gospel of Jesus. So Paul writes in this letter in his very straightforward yet loving way to remind people of the truth and remind people who Jesus really is. So I think the best way to end this letter and the best way for me to share in Colossians 4 is to read the whole thing to you. And if I'm being honest, I wanted to read the entire book. All four chapters, but I'm not going to. I'm just going to settle for his close, the end of his letter. So turn in your Bibles to Colossians 4. Masters, be just and fair to your slaves. Remember that you also have a master in heaven. Devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. Pray for us too, that God will give us many opportunities to speak about his mysterious plan concerning Christ. That is why I am here in chains. Pray that I will proclaim this message as clearly as I should. Live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. Tychicus will give you a full report about how I am getting along. He is a beloved brother and a faithful helper who serves me in the Lord's work. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, to let you know how we are doing and to encourage you. I am also sending Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, one of your very own people. He and Tychicus will tell you everything that is happening here. Aristarchus, who is in prison with me, sends you his greeting, and so does Mark, Barnabas' cousin. As you were instructed before, make Mark welcome if he comes your way. Jesus, the one we call Justice, also sends his greetings. These are the only Jewish believers among my co-workers. They are working with me here for the kingdom of God, and what a comfort they have been. Epaphras, a member of your own fellowship and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends you his greetings. He always prays earnestly for you, asking God to make you strong and perfect, fully confident I love this. He is fully confident that the people he's leading are following the whole will of God. I can assure you that he prays hard for you and also for the believers in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved doctor, sends his greetings and so does Demas. I wonder what it would make us all feel like if we started calling each other beloved. The beloved Blake. The beloved Michaela the beloved Crystal. After you have read this letter, pass it on to the church at Laodicea so they can read it too. And you should read the letter that I wrote them. Can we say unity? And say to Archippus, be sure to carry out the ministry the Lord gave you. That is a word for someone in here today. 
The Lord gave you a ministry. The Lord gave you a call. And this is your reminder. Be sure to do it. Here's my greeting in my own handwriting. Paul, remember my chains. May God's grace be with you. So I had read that chapter probably about 20 times. And every time that I read it, I saw the same things. The same verses kept standing out to me. The same themes came to mind, and it was kind of the obvious verses. You know, when you read the Bible and you're like, oh, yeah, if I was to preach a message on that chapter, I'd preach on that verse, right? Any preachers out there know what I'm talking about? Yeah, okay. Then the Holy Spirit, I was on a plane coming home from Canada a couple weeks ago, and I felt the Holy Spirit say, read it again. And this time, something totally new that I hadn't seen before, or at least hadn't paid very much attention to, literally leapt off the page. It was almost like the words were bolded and were floating up off of the page. And I felt the Holy Spirit begin to drop this word for all of us into my mind. Look at verse 2. Pray for us, too, that God would give us many opportunities to speak about his mysterious plan concerning Christ. That is why I am here in chains. Then go all the way down to the end of the letter, verse 18. Here is my greeting in my own handwriting. Paul, remember my chains. Turn to your neighbor and say, remember my chains. Now turn to your other neighbor and make sure they heard it. Remember my chains. You guys sound hilarious when you do that. This is what it sounds like. (laughs) Throughout all of Paul's writings from prison, he mentioned his chains and he mentioned being in prison often. You can find lots of verses throughout his letters about this. And all these years that I was reading my Bible, I thought it was Paul asking for a little sympathy. Hey, guys, (laughs) I'm writing you these awesome letters about freedom and grace and the Holy Spirit's power in your life. But don't forget that I'm over here in prison. I'm suffering. Don't forget about me. I'm over here suffering. I mean, that's what I would do. Hey, be encouraged. Don't forget about me. Until now. See, Paul was not a whiner. I know some whiners. I know you know some whiners. You know... My kids can be whiners sometimes. They're not in here, so I can totally say this. Um, No, I would say it to them, too, because I'm an eight. Um, How was your your play date? Well, it was good, but... uh... Or that person that you ask how they're doing, and every time you know you're going to get the sad sob story. Like, we all know whiners, right? We can all be whiners. But Paul was not a whiner. And he was certainly not one to victimize himself. In Ephesians, he'd just written the church in Ephesus this powerful, um, this powerful word about the armor of God and how we're to use it in battle. And we're not supposed to back down from the powers of darkness. And at the very end of that, he says this. Oh, and don't forget to pray for me. Pray for me. Not that I'm here in prison and that I'll have good food. Pray that I'll know what to say and I'll have the courage to say it at the right time. Telling the mystery to one and all. The message that I, and then he jokes about it, jailbird preacher that I am, am responsible for getting out. He's not saying pray for me that I'll be comfortable. He's saying pray that I'll have the words and the courage to speak out the gospel of Jesus. 
Then in his letter to the Philippians, he says this, how I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. I know you have always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help me. Not that I ever was in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. And then this is so awesome. He says, I don't say this because I want a gift from you. Rather, I want you to receive a reward for your kindness. At this moment, I have all that I need and more. He is in prison as he writes that. Paul wasn't a victim. He was bold. He was determined. He was content. He had learned to be content under any situation. He was relentless in his call to share the message of Jesus, but he was not a victim. Paul spent much of his the end of his life in physical chains, but he was as free as anyone that I have ever met or ever read about. And here's what I realized when I read those verses from Colossians 4. Pray for us, too, that God would give us many opportunities to speak about his mysterious plan concerning Christ. That is why I am here in chains. His chains reminded him of his purpose. Every time he looked at his chains, he remembered what God had called him to do. His purpose was to share the gospel of Jesus, whether he was free or whether he was in chains. And his chains were a constant reminder to him of what God had put in front of him. His chains were not bondage to him. He was as free as anyone can be because his chains pointed him to his purpose. And then at the very end of his letter, this one simple sentence that he says, remember my chains. Not remember that I'm here rotting in prison, but remember the purpose for which we have all been called to. Remember why I am here in chains. I think Paul got it loud and clear. You see, his physical chains, his physical suffering was insignificant to his life other than being a constant reminder of what he was called to do. His chains did not stop him from fully living out his purpose. Some of you are in some physical chains right now. Some of you are in some suffering right now, and you have allowed it to cause you to come to a standstill in the call of God on your life. You have allowed your suffering and your physical chains to take you off the team. Some of these letters that Paul wrote to the early churches all over the region when he was in prison, he was in chains, many of them. In fact, the book of Acts, which is where this church gets our vision from, it's a book that has affected and transformed, I would say, most of us in this room. It was written by Luke and dictated by Paul, and they were both in chains. What if your chains and the suffering that you're going through right now are for someone else's freedom a thousand years from now? 
I wonder, we beg God for our chains to be removed. God, just take this away from me. End my suffering. This is too hard. But what if the chains that we are currently in are what we need for the time to keep pointing us back to our purpose? I know I've lost some of you, so let me clarify. Usually we talk about chains being broken. It's one of my favorite songs, like break every chain. We talk about freedom and walking in freedom. Yes, we do, and that is all true. Let me explain this. Paul had freedom regardless of his chains. I would like to suggest to us today that there are some chains that are meant to be left on and not asked to be broken off. And that we might be missing out by not understanding the difference. There are chains that we need to break off. Let's be really clear with that. There are chains that we need to be set free from. And the Bible is crystal clear about it. The first is the chains of the old law. Galatians 3. Before it was possible to be saved from the punishment of sin by putting our trust in Christ, before Jesus came to earth and died for us, we were held under the law. It was as if we were being kept in prison, chained. We were kept this way until Christ came. The law was used to lead us to Christ. It was our teacher, and so we were made right with God by putting our trust in Christ. Now that our faith is in Christ, we do not need the law to lead us. You are now children of God because you have put your trust in Christ Jesus. I love further down in that passage. We don't have time to go all that way, but it says all who've been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. You remember last week when Chris talked about shedding off the grave clothes and putting on the new clothes. That's what Jesus does. It's like putting on new clothes. And then Galatians 5.1 says this, Christ made us free. Stay that way. Don't get all chained up over again in the law and it's kind of religious worship. So we are to be free from religious law that was in place all those years ago for God's people before Jesus came and fulfilled the law. Listen carefully. This does not mean that we are free to do whatever we want. In fact, it actually calls us to a higher standard of living because we don't live by a list of do's and don'ts. We rely on the conviction and the guidance of the Holy Spirit to lead us as we follow Jesus. And our motivation for doing that is living in his shadow, not in our own light. So if you are bound by religious rules, or you are bound by doctrine, or you are bound by something that is keeping you from freedom in Christ, those are chains that need to be broken off. It is very clear that Jesus came to bring you into full freedom. There's a second set of chains that we need to break off, and those are the chains of sin. I don't need to lay sin out for you. You all know what sin is. Sin shows up differently in every single one of our lives. But very simply, sin is anything that is contrary to how Jesus has asked us to live, be it in action or an attitude. Sometimes I think we, we might have a bad attitude about something or we might um, 
We might be complaining about something, living in, in some sort of yuck. But we think that because we haven't taken action on it, we're not sinning. No, that's not true. Your heart condition, your thoughts, your mind, those all also need to come in line with how the Holy Spirit has asked us to live. In Acts 13, Paul says, so listen, friends, through this Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is offered to, offered to you. Everyone who believes in him is set free from sin and guilt, something the law of Moses had no power to do. Romans 6.22 says, but now you are free from the power of sin and have become slaves of God. Now you do those things that lead to holiness and result in eternal life. So there are two kinds of chains that do need to be broken off in your life. The first one is the chains of the old law because Jesus came and set us free. The second one is the chains of sin in our life that so easily can come back and wrap us up and trip us up. At the very beginning of Colossians 4, he says this. Masters, be just and fair to your slaves. Remember that you also have a master in heaven. And in many of Paul's letters, he introduces himself as, I'm Paul, a slave to Christ Jesus. If I'm being honest, I got that. Like, I... I I knew and I understood intellectually why he was saying that, but it was sort of odd to me until you start to understand the culture that he was in. See, in our minds, slavery is a terrible thing, right? We hear, we hear the word slave and we immediately like, <sighs> because of the horrific history and the treatment of people in the early years of this country and now because of human trafficking, we hear that word slavery and we cringe. And it's no wonder that the word slave brings a bad taste to our mouth. It should bring a bad taste to our mouth if it relates to the treatment of other human beings who are made in the image of God. Absolutely. But we have to understand that when Paul uses this term slave, he's using it because of their culture and of the imagery that it gave people. They understood the position of master and slave. See, with the word of God, there's always this tension. There's always that, that, that tension between two things and between his ways. Things like truth in love, judgment and mercy, free and slave. And remember, tension is good. Tension is what builds our physical muscles, and it also builds our faith muscles. Peter, the apostle, says this, for you are free, yet you are God's slaves. Free, slave. So don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. And then Paul, man, I love this so much, two amazing men of God, Peter and Paul, both saying the same things. Again, unity in the church. Paul says, stay where you were when God called your name. He knows he's speaking to both slaves and free people. Were you a slave? 
Slavery is no roadblock to obeying and believing. I don't mean you're stuck and you can't leave. If you have a chance at freedom, go ahead and take it. I'm simply trying to point out that under your new master, Jesus, you're going to experience a marvelous freedom you never would have dreamed of. On the other hand, if you were free when Christ called you, you'll experience a delightful enslavement to God that you never could have dreamed of. The word slave that Paul uses over and over again when he refers to himself being a slave is the word doulos, which means to tie or to be bound to. Paul meant that he was bound to Christ. He also knew that there was a cost to following Jesus. I wonder, do we know that there's a cost? I mean, do you think we really know that? I'm not sure that some of us or really any of us really understand true suffering in our lives. I'm not saying you haven't suffered. We all have suffered. Some of you have suffered in unimaginable ways. But I'm saying, do we understand what it means in our lives? I think I'm suffering when they give me a um, domed lid at Starbucks instead of a flat lid. (laughs) You all have those things too. We think we're suffering when we get a bad haircut or the sniffles or when things don't go our way. And we don't like to talk about suffering because it doesn't make us feel good, yet the Bible tells us over and over and over again that suffering is to be expected, and it actually goes further. It says we're supposed to rejoice in it. See, church, people, every single one of you, we are not called to be observers of Jesus. We are called to follow Jesus. Follow the leader. Do what he does. Jesus gave his life. The disciples who followed Jesus, they all lost their lives because they followed him. Chris talked about the story of Lazarus last week, and he's telling his disciples, hey, we're going to go back to Judea, and we're going to go see Lazarus. And his disciples are like, no, 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 uh-uh. They tried to stone us a few days ago. We can't go back there. And Jesus says, oh, we're going. And then Thomas looks at all the disciples, and he says, let's go too and die with Jesus. They knew the cost. Paul lost his life because he followed Jesus. A call back then to follow Jesus was a call to die. A call to follow Jesus today is still a call to die. Maybe for most of us in this exact time in history, it's not a call to physically die, but it is a call to die to our own pleasures. It is a call to seek first his kingdom and not our own. And Jesus says this over and over and over again. He lays out the cost for us. Luke 14, a large crowd was following Jesus. He turned around and said to them, if you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else. Your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. 
Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. You don't begin, but you don't begin until you've count the cost. For who would begin a construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there was enough money to finish it? Otherwise, you might complete only the foundation before running out of money and everyone would laugh at you. They would say, there's the person who started that building and couldn't afford to finish it. So you cannot become my disciples without giving up everything you own. Again, it's that tension because we all know love God, love people, right? The two greatest commandments. And yet Jesus is saying hate everyone. It's that tension between love, yes, love, but also being willing to give up everything for the sole purpose of your eyes being fixed on Jesus and nothing else. Jesus was saying, count the cost before you choose to follow me. Some of us, lots of us in our world right now in North America did not do that. We made a one-time decision, and we forgot that there was a cost to following Jesus, and now we're making him look bad. Following Jesus doesn't just cost you some things. It costs you everything. It's a complete surrender of your own desires. And it doesn't just cost you everything. It guarantees that you will encounter suffering. Jesus said these words in Matthew. Then you will be arrested, persecuted, and killed. You will be hated all over the world because you are my followers. And many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and will deceive many people. Sin will be rampant everywhere and the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. See, we don't like suffering. We want to get through it as fast as possible. We pray for it to end so that life feels more doable, so it feels more comfortable, so it feels more controllable. But maybe what Paul meant was that we were to let our chains, our suffering, remind us of our purpose. Our suffering reminds us who we're following. Maybe our attitudes in the midst of our suffering are being used to point people to Jesus. Maybe our suffering is a reflection of the fact that we are following Jesus and not just observing from a distance. Some of you have been in suffering for a long time and you feel like it has never ended and it's one thing after the next. Some of you are enduring suffering like you've never endured it before. Wear it like a badge. Because Jesus told us it would happen and he says, it's because you're in my shadow. You're close enough to me that you're suffering the way I suffer. We're a slave bound to Christ, yet we are free because he has already paid the price for us. And I think that's what Paul meant when he said, remember my chains. And at the end of all of this, it really comes down to faith. In that story of Jesus bringing Lazarus out of the grave, back from death to life, Jesus gives us these powerful instructions. He's come with his disciples to the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus in Judea, and the mourners are all gathered at the grave. 
And it actually says he got angry <laughs> because what he saw there, the morning he saw going on, because he already knew what was going to happen. He goes to the grave and he tells them, roll away the stone. And Martha, being the responsible one, being the practical one that she is, says, oh, Jesus, <laughs> I don't think you want to do that. It is going to stink. Like, it's going to be real bad, Jesus. And Jesus responds to her and he says, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? Jesus lays it out for us. When we have faith to believe, we will see the glory of God in our lives. Listen, it starts with this. Faith to believe in something even though you can't see it. And belief to accept something as true. Then you will see with your eyes the glory and the wonder of our Father. Last week during school, the kids and I wrote on our big whiteboard the words, see Jesus in everything. And we asked ourselves to write all of the ways that we had seen Jesus in the last few days. And there were some cool things on there. Um, the little birdies that were sitting up on the wire outside of our house. Uh, Jules learning how to do her back handspring. Bubby. <laughs> they both put Bubby, which is Wilder, Heidi's little guy. And you know how they saw him? They saw him sitting on the stool laughing his little heart out. They saw Jesus in that. This is an incredible tool. Do it. Just try it. Trust me. Because what it does is it takes your eyes off of you and it puts them on Jesus in little things and in big things. And it changes your perspective. It changes your life. This is what Paul meant when he said, remember my chains. Remember to see Jesus in these chains that I'm wearing. Remember that suffering is a part of it. Remember that suffering may be there to remind you of your purpose. Change the way you view your chains. Change the way you view your sufferings. Not chains of the old law and definitely not chains of sin, but chains that bind you to Jesus. Right before Jesus is arrested, his disciples say to him, we believe now. We believe that you came from God. And Jesus says, now you finally believe me. And everything I've taught you is so that the peace which is in me will be in you and will give you great confidence as you rest in me, regardless of your suffering, regardless of your chains, regardless of the hardships in your life. For in this unbelieving world, you will experience trouble and sorrows, but you must be courageous for I have conquered the world. Church, have faith and believe and you will see the glory of God in your lives. I can promise you that. Embrace your suffering and let your chains remind you of your purpose. Because your chains are proof that you are following Jesus and that you are living in his shadow. Would you stand up on your feet? Some of you are suffering today. And I want you to stretch out your hands and I want you to say, maybe you've never said this before.
And if your heart is ready, I want you to say, God, thank you for my suffering. And then name it. You know what it is. God, thank you for uncertainty about my future. God, thank you for the struggle that I have in my marriage. God, thank you for this illness. Let it remind me of the call that you have put on my life to follow after you, to be in step with you, to live in your shadow, and let it point others to Jesus. Remember my chains. Remember the reason that I have called you to this earth. In Jesus' name.